Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broadening our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I am here with Jason. Hey, everyone. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. about yourself? Pretty good. Excited to talk about Solomon Kane. Yeah. Um, so last time, we got to get this out of the way first. Mm-hmm, you teased. We, we teased a special guest. Um, that's not happening. So... <sighs> I've been edging for like two weeks. <laughs> uh, temper your expectations. It wasn't going to be anything too grand. It was just going to be Michael hopping back in for an episode. Hey, it doesn't get um, any grander than that. True. Yeah, that might have been better than a real like surprise guest. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had we had said there were certain genres and certain topics that like he would have to come back for. So this was one of those. Uh, unfortunately, he's having some issues right now. Some stuff going on. Uh, we just couldn't find the time to schedule it and all sync up at the same time. Which but is unfortunate. We wish him well. Um, but we love you, Michael. We wish you well. I know you're dealing with a lot right now, so if everyone else listening can just join us in sending you good vibes. Positive vibes. Positive everybody. energy. Good thoughts. Um, we love you, man. Take care. That's right. That said, you did leave us with Solomon Kane from 2009 as your pick for the fantasy block we're doing. And we're going to talk the hell out of it. Yes, we will. As best we can. But first, we're going to do all our usual stuff. So I have a weird shout-out this time, because it's not really like I listen to a podcast kind of thing. I've been doing those lately, just because I feel like I want to have the shout-out to like be like, hey, here's a cool thing. Um, but my podcast listening time has been, you know, kind of cut, so mm-hmm. it, it is what it is. So I actually stumbled on this by, by accident on Twitter. So I've been watching a lot of Japanese horror films, and I'm doing that thing now, right, where every time I tweet, a tweet's worth review of every film. Yep. And so I guess because I kept in every review being like, blah, 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 J-horror, <laughs> it was popping up for other people. And then so I got I got followed by this page, and then I was checking it out, and I was like, oh, shit, no. So um, there is a documentary in the works about kind of the, the rise of J-horror as a subgenre and how mm-hmm. it started and then how it had its whole boom overseas and worldwide and got all this interest. And it's called The J-horror Virus. You can look it up. They've got a Twitter page. They've got you know some promotions and stuff that they're doing about it. Uh, it's not quite out yet. I couldn't find a date of like when. Um, but if you're like me and you love Japanese horror, go follow them. Put it on your radar. And it's got a funny connection for you and me, Jason, and and I guess for Michael as well with this podcast. Um, one of the people involved in this pro- project is uh, Jasper Sharp, the film critic. Oh, okay. Who cool. I'm a very big fan of. Um, he's one of the people that helped run Midnight Eye, which is like a great source for Japanese film. Uh, he wrote the pink film book that I use basically as a Bible <laughs> these days in my travels. Um, so super cool. If you love Japanese horror, go put that on your radar and keep an eye out for it. That does sound like a cool doc. Uh, looking forward to that. <laughs> He's like immediately going to follow the page right now. On his yeah, phone. let's go do it. Let's go do it. <laughs> um, so yeah, what have you been watching, man? I have been watching something you are probably familiar with. Oh, okay. At least tangentially, I'm sure. Probably Japanese. It is Japanese. Cool. Um, I wanted something kind of short mm-hmm. and fun and fast. Uh, so I watched Metal Skin Panic, Maddox Zero One. Oh, See, I actually kickstarted the Blu-ray remaster of this. I was going to ask yeah. you about that because I saw it was getting a yeah. new Blu-ray release. Yeah, I, I got the blue on this one. <laughs> nice, nice. Has it come out already? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. cool, cool. Um, yeah, I've never seen it before, but it's an OVA from 87. Mm-hmm. And for those who may not know, OVA is original video animation. Yep, went now, direct is that still to video. A thing? It, it is, but not as like predominant. Right. Um, 
these days they have a lot of stuff that's like ONAs, original net animations, where it goes like direct to streaming. Somewhere. That makes more sense. Yeah. Um, but they they are still out there. They still do exist. Um, it's a pretty fun movie. I liked it. It's basically, in a nutshell, it's about uh, this dude named Koji. He's a young mechanic, and he finds this super secret um, suit called Matic Zero One. Like you do. Like you do. And it's like built to bust tanks. Like mm-hmm. at the very beginning, they show it like fighting all these tanks, and it's taking them out and everything. And uh, so he's playing around with it, gets stuck inside. <laughs> but, you know, the, the authorities, the people who made it, want it back. Uh-huh. So they're coming after him to get it, and he's just like, "Leave me alone!" He's trying to get to his girlfriend the whole time. Who's about to leave for university in England? It's an anime tale as old as time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I liked it. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it's short as simple. I was surprised that it wasn't part of a series because uh-huh. almost every OVA you come across, there's you know six or eight tapes or something like well, that. Well, the thing about a lot of OVAs, especially if they're in the '80s and going into the '90s, like the sale of each volume would fund the next one. Mm. So like there's, there's what's this? It's a really obscure one. It's called Elf Princess Rain. And it's like sort of a comedy anime. And so they literally were going like episode to episode funding it. And so episode two has a trailer for the third episode. There's just a few things they animated and then like some sketches. And that was like all they had. And they kind of just jammed that into a trailer. They didn't make enough money and there was never a third episode. Oh, and it's no. just kind of lost oh, into limbo. No. So does that mean that this was not very successful, Metal Skin Panic? You know, I don't know a lot of the history about it, and there are special features on the Blu-ray, so I probably should dig into that, but cool. I don't really know if it was meant to be a one-and-done or, or what. It was pretty fun. I wouldn't mind seeing more in the series. Okay, the animation, um, though, is like, oof. Pretty the animations, good. yeah, it's good, especially all the, the mech stuff, mm-hmm. especially. It's pretty cool. Very fluid. And the mech itself reminded me of a lot of the Glitter Boys from Riffs. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that influence this or the other way around because <laughs> this came out 87 riffs i don't know that's around the same time pretty close yeah hmm. it's not like riffs didn't also rip off uh, sure. robotech and every, right. everything else yeah yeah because when the uh, like robot the veritech fighters in their guardian mode they look a lot like the glitter boys anyway mm-hmm. so that's what i watched <laughs> killer anything else uh, nothing of note. of note. Mostly I've been doing a lot of comfort food lately. I've been going back and watching uh, the original Star Trek films. Oh, fun. So, What's your favorite? Of all of them? Yeah. Well, it's Star Trek Two, obviously. Okay. Breath of Khan. Hard to... Okay, if that one didn't exist, though. Of the original? Yeah, I want to make you actually pick one of those. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Um, mm. For me, it comes down to either three or six. Because mm. I think three doesn't get enough love. I think it's a pretty good flick. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to bring them back... I like four a lot too. <laughs> not five. I can tell you that definitely. <laughs> Definitively, it is not five. Oh, but why? Uh-huh. Uh. Okay. So, what have you been watching, my friends? So, I've been watching way too much to squeeze into one segment. So, of course, you have. I have to get choosy. And uh, when I get choosy, I go to stuff I love. So, I checked out the Japanese remake of Cube from 2021. Okay, so this is a straight remake. So, I mean, I guess you. there's no real lore connection to any of the other films, so it could just be another Cube movie, I guess. But sure. um, I took it as a remake just because a lot of the plot, they kind of like beat for beat remake a lot of the first film, mm-hmm. which is my first big criticism with it because... You've seen it before. You've seen it before. Yeah. I always wanted to see what twist they would put on it because I was like, dude, this is... Cube was like one of the OGs on those like Death Trap movies. Japan's all about those kind of things. They've, they've done so many great ones. I want to see what they're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of just like a by-the-numbers remake of the first Cube. 
with like some of the stylistic elements of the second one. So it's got some of the elements of like the second movie where they brought the more like neon lighting stuff, like less industrial. It's more futuristic looking. Mm -hmm. The cube has that vibe to it. So it's not the like grungy industrial of the first film. It's not like the grungy. Yeah. Um, But it's the same thing. There's six strangers. They wake up in the cube. They find each other. They start to piece together what's going on. They have varying opposing personalities. Um, They're all a little more muted than like the OG cube cast. Because, you know, a lot of those were, like, very over-the-top personalities, which made a lot of the drama. So, through through a lot of it, the drama was, like, kind of dry a lot of the times. Like, Mm. there wasn't as much, like, big stakes and big moments. Um, And really, like, they definitely tried to nail those, like, best shots. Like, anything that was, like, an iconic thing from an earlier film, they, like, work that in again. But it's just kind of the same thing again. And so the only thing you really have to, to care about it, I guess, is, like, where they chose to do something different. And when they did those, I'm just going to go ahead and spoil this film. So, hey, if you care at all, skip over this. But mm-hmm. um, they, they broke, I would say, the cardinal sin of a Cube film. I, I, maybe I'm not an expert, but I do consider myself a uh, Cube connoisseur, <laughs> as you might say. And um, so You're a Cubist. Okay. I'm a Cubist. Yeah. Uh, and the first, the big thing, like, you can't break it is you got to stay in the Cube, man, right? Like, it's right. got to all be in there. Obviously. Anything you learn is, like, narrated from a person. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know. So they break it in multiple ways. First is they have full-on like flashbacks to their life outside the cube. Lame. Um, then they get to the edge and you get to see outside the cube and learn like how its outer structure is completely set up. Mm, don't like it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not cool with it. And then, and then the big, big twist at the end. Um, so like all of them have died. They get to the end. They have the whole, like one of them's betraying them and it's going to kill them all. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, and they do all the same beats too of like, Oh, the rooms are numbered. We can do this math. Coordinates, um, yeah. the, the prime number rooms aren't trapped. Oh, the rooms are coordinates. We can triangulate the edge of the cube and get out that way. They, they do all that, all that stuff. Boop, boop, mm-hmm. boop. Um, you get to the end. Um, they found like the connecting cube that goes to the exit. Cause it like shifts and moves along the outer edge. But if you link up with it at the right spot, you can get out and escape. Or that's what they think. Okay. Uh, so they get there, and they're dealing with the uh, the guy who's crazy, who's betrayed them. And so there's like a little kid in the group, and the main guy manages to get the little kid through the exit. And it's like this long hallway that just goes into a void of white light. Mm-hmm. But in doing so, he gets stuck back in the cube with the crazy guy and has to like fend for himself. And then the connecting piece like shifts... And then so that the exit's like lost to him until it comes back again. Okay. And they like fall into a trap room and it's like, ooh, what happened? And so the kid walks out into the light and it's like, ooh. So then um, there's like one female in the cast and she's kind of weird the whole time and like cagey. So at the very end, they do this like twist reveal that she's this like computer. She's a robot or she's like an AI or something. And she's like the administrator of the cube. And she's been like monitoring every person. Yeah. And so it does like a snapshot of her like analysis of everyone. It's like, oh, so and so, this person, they died to this trap in this room, their trials completed, and then it's like this person, same thing. And then it gets to the kid, and it's like the kid got to the exit, his trials completed, he's been reformed, and then and then at the very end, what you learn is like kind of the main character that you've been focused on. He didn't die in the trap room; he narrowly escaped, and then it like tells you that his trials continuing as he like takes a deep breath and rises up to keep going through the cube to try to find the exit again. Mm. And I was like, meh. 
It sounds like it's more influenced by Saul than the original Cube, <laughs> which I thought Saul was very influ- influenced by Cube. Oh, yeah, for Cube. sure, for sure, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, it's like, it, it's okay. I guess it's not the worst it could have been, but... Yeah, is there any good gore or anything? Not really. Yeah, no. what's the point? <laughs> you know something else great about the original Cube? What's that? It had Nicole DeBoer. True. Who played Esri Dex, Dax <laughs> on uh, Deep Space Nine. So, you know, true. Star Trek connection with that one. Very true. I'm glad you got that in already. Mm-hmm. Beyond oh. just your mention of the movies. Oh, I've got one for Solomon Kane too. Did oh, you cool. catch the Star Trek connection actor-wise? I don't know if I did or not. Yeah, we'll get there. Okay, we'll get there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is what it is. Um, I don't think it's actively streaming anywhere. It played at, like, every festival the last, like, year or two. Um, it's out there. You can find it if you care. If you're a cube completist, <laughs> you need to see it. The ultimate cubist. Um, I guess in the end, that explanation of what's going on is no worse than what they tried to suggest with, like, Cube Zero. See, I didn't like the sequels. I only like no. the original. It's, the original's like, ooh, pinnacle, and then... Yeah. It, it is I like it not is. knowing. I love not knowing. Yeah. Because even those flashbacks, I was like, dude, just have your person like dramatically narrate that to someone yeah, else. Yeah, you can get across all that yeah. with some yeah. dialogue and shit. It is what it is. It's cute. Okay. Um, now I'm going to talk about another Japanese film because, uh-huh. again, I've been on that bender. So it's it's a weird one to talk about because it's like a series, but um, it's all connected like one plot. So it's called Friends Game and or Tomodachi Game if you look for the Japanese title. Like those little virtual pet things? <laughs> That's Tamagotchi. Oh, oh, okay. Um, Tomodachi means friend, so oh, okay. therein. It's probably where Tamagotchi got its name from, too. I'm probably, sure that's I'm some I'm sure there's some portmanteau connection. there, yeah. Your little pocket friend thing, Gigapet. Um, no, so Tomodachi game. It's about a group of high school kids. They're collecting money for like a school trip, and then they randomly have some of it go missing. It's going to mess everything up. And then this little, like, tight-knit group of five that are, like, best friends get abducted. And they wake up in this weird white void room. And they meet this, like, anime mascot character. It's, like, one of the big, like, suits, like, someone would wear at, like, Disney World or something. Mm-hmm. With, like, the big, like, foam head and everything. Right. And they've, they've been told that, you know, one of them has this debt of 20 million yen. And they took 2 million yen and paid to enter them as a group into the Tomodachi game. Which is, like, this sort of, like, demented game show... That's like an underground, like death game, black market kind of thing where like people pay to watch it. Um, It's not so much like death focused. It's more like, I guess, psychological. Because the idea is the debt gets split among the contestants and you play a series of games. And in each game, the premise is if you can like maintain your friendships and your trust, you can make it through and clear. And if you get all the way to the end and survive and make it through everything, they'll wipe away your debts and everyone can go free. Okay. But then in each game, there's a premise where if you betray the other people, you can like lessen your debt or get out easier and sooner than having to go all the way and actually try to clear everything. And so there's this whole big buildup of like each of them have like a secret that they've been keeping from the other ones. Of course. And then they start to like ply that for drama because the people behind the thing want like drama for those who are watching. Um, and then there's secret agendas and everything, and it kind of just blows up into this like very dramatic chaos. Okay. Now a lot of people may not like this because like again there isn't like it's not Saw. There's not a death trap every time. No yeah. one's dying off really. It's a lot more of just like dramatic tension and mm-hmm. like um, the main character Yuichi is like he's got this dark past, but he's very clever, and he could be very manipulative, but it's like he usually chooses not to. And in the thick of things, he realizes he has to start kind of like 
manipulating his friends to sort out because one of them is a traitor that's kind of lying, that's trying to set everybody else up. Okay. Um, so a lot of good like psychological mind game stuff. Okay. Which I'm super into. I really dig it. I really dig the vibe. Um, this live action version, the leading lady is played by Rio Uchida. I don't know if you'd be familiar with her, Jason, but she's been, she was like the leading lady in a common writer series and she's been in a ton of films. Nah. I think she's like one of the most gorgeous people on the planet. So I was like, Oh my God, I love this movie. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's good. It's, it's weird. Cause it starts as like a TV drama of four episodes and then they compile that into a movie and then made two more movies to like finish the story. Okay. Um, so we'll say that first part, the storytelling is a little awkward because it's meant to be like a TV drama. Right. And it has that pacing of like every eh, 25 minutes, there's kind of like a stop point, mm-hmm. restart point. But Is this one readily available? It is not. <laughs> However, <laughs> just in the last like year or so, it, it's all based on a manga. And so the manga got an anime version. Okay. Same same story, same plot. It's just an anime. Mm-hmm. Um and I know that is streaming on Crunchyroll. And I think it's getting a home media release here in like May. Nice. So. Oh, I should have mentioned Metal Skin Panic is streaming <clears throat> on Amazon Prime. Oh, nice. So if you had not seen it, check it out. Easy to get at. So yeah. if you dig this idea of Tomodachi game, the anime is at least there for you to get at to kind of see like, do I like this? Is this, is this my jam? Cool. Anything else you need to talk about before we get into our main feature? No, I guess we can actually do the point of the podcast now. <laughs> okay. And, and not just have me recount like 10 more movies. <laughs> I'm sure you could. So today we are talking about Solomon Kane, 2009, directed by M.J. Bassett, based on the legendary character by Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan, if you don't know him for anything else. Most famous for Conan. Wow, where to begin? With Solomon <laughs> Kane? I guess the beginning. Yeah, um, I guess top level genre, of course, we're fantasy again. Um, do you yeah. have anything you would want to add in specific? I would say it's still dark fantasy. Mm-hmm. I would say a tinge darker than Dragon Slayer. Oh, sure. This is an R-rated film, mm-hmm. so there's more violence. Um, I think that's really it, though. The violence is the big thing. They <laughs> yeah. made it an R. Definitely. Hard R on that violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Solomon Kane, the first story was published in Weird Tales in 1928. Uh, the story was Red Shadows. It's a banger of a story to you. Yeah. And... Uh, Robert E. Howard is only 22 years old at this time. And of course, tragically, he died young. Mm-hmm. He died when he was 30. Sadly, he committed suicide. Um, but man, he wrote so much stuff. I know. I mean, it was just a font of, of great classic stuff. I mean, yeah, he wrote the occasional, okay, whatever, you know. Because <laughs> he wrote mostly for Weird Tales, right. which was a disposable type magazine at the time, one of the pulps. The pulps. Yep. Uh, contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. They even collaborated a little. They did. Had a long correspondence. Also with Clark Ashton Smith, mm-hmm. another great Weird Tales writer. If you've never heard or read any of his stuff, you really should. Um, sadly, not a lot of Solomon Kane stories, though. Uh, we have some ephemera here while we're recording now, which is a weird new thing we've been doing. And Jason has his little collection of Solomon Kane stories. And it's three very compact 
paperback volumes. Yeah, apparently these were the first paperback editions published. Oh, cool. There's a hardcover that came out, I want to say 68. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's very collectible. Um, <laughs> and then these by Centaur Press came out starting in 69. Nice, and they're nice. actually pretty affordable. I mean, you can find them for like 12, 15 bucks. Hmm. So there's quite a few of them. They're not that collectible, but they're nice. They're, they're, I mean, they have like 75 cents on the cover. <laughs> you know, they're good old books. So if you love that sort of a thing, they're pretty easy to come by. And you have the RPG. Oh, yes, yes. Um, since we have been making lots of RPG connections due to our very vague D&D tie-in for this whole block. <laughs> um... Savage Worlds, it's one of those like generic RPG systems where you can like take it and run any genre. Universal. Yep. Universal. Um, they've done all kinds of different licenses over the years. And one of their early licenses was the Savage World of Solomon Kane, and it was a whole RPG built around the stories of Solomon Kane. Um that's a good system for Solomon Kane. It's too, a good I system. Think. Like Savage Worlds, uh, this is an RPG podcast, but I'm gonna give this reveal. <laughs> um it's good for anything that's very actiony, very pulpy, kind of two-fisted. You're just jumping through places and knocking the bad guys out. Low and... on rules, quick mm-hmm. on action. Yeah. Um, so it's the perfect fit for anything Robert E. Howard, I think. 5e would not be. <laughs> yeah. 5e is rarely a good fit for even 5e. Oh, so. Ooh, shots, shots fired. fired. Um, yeah, but this is a cool like companion thing. Like If you, for some reason, really obsessed with Solomon Kane, And you should be. <laughs> yeah, you should be if you watch this movie, I think. But... Um, it's like it covers all the stories, kind of gives you like a synopsis of all of them. Um, very, very big labor of love. Like the people that made it clearly had a lot of respect for mm-hmm. the stories and for Howard. Um, sadly, they are out of print now. I think they, they let the license kind of go away. Yeah, I didn't really catch on. Um, it was kind of a hard sell to most gamers, I think. Right. And I think it strikes of that thing of like, uh, you know, back in the day, TSR, um, they made an Indiana Jones role playing game. <laughs> And it was all that stuff like, why would you play it? Because you just want to be indie. Like, everybody wants to be indie. Yeah. Who wants to sit at the table and play a short round? <laughs> I mean, I would do that because I think that would be amazing. That would but, be amazing. Um, Sala or somebody. Yeah. But it's that same vibe. But um, they do a good job in this tabletop game of adapting it where it's like, you, you're not going to be Solomon Kane, But you you play as, like, people that encountered him and kind of pick up his same sure. ethos and... Window. <laughs> There's room for lots of puritanical demon fighters out <laughs> yes, there. Yes, yes. Follow in his stead. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with who Solomon Kane is, yeah, he, he is basically, he's a Puritan. He lived during the 1600s. He, um, he's got the whole slouch hat, the whole pilgrim hat. Mm-hmm. You know, he's Iconic. His cloak. He's carrying pistols. He's got like a rapier. Um, he has a staff at one point. He gets, it's kind of like yeah. a magic staff. There's a, a kind of like different cycles of the stories where he's in different areas. So there's a whole cycle where he's in Europe. There's a cycle where he's in, like, the colonies in America. And just like the Conan stories, they were written out of order. Mm-hmm. Like Robert Howard always <laughs> said that he felt like someone was standing behind him telling him the stories. And, like, if you're, like, like you're a war veteran or something, you're not going to go by your, through your life telling stories to right. your grandkids chronologically. You're just going to say, hey, here's a good story. You know? <laughs> hey, do you remember the time I told you about this? Yeah. Uh, and then the third set are set in Africa, which which those, I guess, if we're, if we're going back in 2023, can be a little problematic sometimes. Yeah, well, we're talking about the pulps from the 20s, um, man. Yeah, but that's why, because that is still the time of where it's like, oh, yes, deepest, darkest Africa with yeah. its many mysteries. And don't, um, don't forget, the stuff that was acceptable then isn't now. <laughs> stuff that's acceptable now won't be in almost 100 years. So Very, very true, very true. All you woke people out there, <laughs> there's going to be something in your past that's going to haunt you too. Um, 
but but that said, that is like one of the most enduring like side characters in all these stories is um, in Longa, which is an African shaman that he mm-hmm. befriends, and that's the magical staff you're talking yeah, about. He, he, gets he gives him that staff that's like probably like his prominent magic item kind of thing. Yeah. But, and, and before we get into the movie itself, if I have any. My primary criticism is that it doesn't use any of Robert Howard's stories. Mm-hmm. It's its own story, which isn't a bad story. There's a reason for that, and we're going to get into that okay. as we, we go right. into the production. Okay. Maybe we should just dive right into it, huh? Yeah, so now that we're oriented, I'll hit you with the synopsis, and then we can dry, dive right on in. So, a ruthless mercenary renounces violence after learning his soul is bound for hell. When a young girl is kidnapped and her family slain by a sorcerer's murderous cult... He is forced to fight and seek his redemption by slaying evil. Cool. Yeah. Solid premise. Syncs up pretty well to the summary you gave. If I didn't know Solomon Kane and I saw that description for a movie, I would be intrigued. Oh, yeah. So we start in 1600. We do. In the middle of what <clears throat> looks like a siege of a city. Yep. I think this is supposed to be North Africa. I'm not 100% on that. but Yeah, I think they're fighting the Ottomans. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they got ships, they're firing cannons into the city, and then we see this big melee brawl as they're trying to... It's pretty epic. It's like pretty good. right out the gate, if this yeah. is what you're starting on. And James Purfoy, is that how you pronounce his name? Purfoy? Sure. Sure. He plays Solomon King, and he is definitely a great choice for Dude, he, if you look at any art of what Solomon King looks like, yeah. this guy is just him walking right off the page. Yeah, it really is. And he... <clears throat> In, in no time, he lets you know who he is at yeah. this point in the story. Because he's fighting all these dudes. <laughs> he's got two swords. He's, his fighting style is quick and efficient and pretty brutal. He is ruthless. And he's loving the entire time. You know, he's, he's just like grinning ear to battle. ear. Yeah. yeah. There's that one cool part where he stabs the guy in the throat. Mm-hmm. And he's like walking along, <laughs> forcing yeah, him to come he, with he him. He drags him as he's cutting his throat open. Yeah. And that was pretty cool. It's <laughs> fucking epic, dude. Yeah. This is how you start a movie. That's how you start a damn movie. <laughs> and then after they kind of defeat everyone and they're sacking the place, he wants to go to the throne room because there's supposed to be some great treasure there. Mm-hmm. And his men are kind of wary. They're like, no, we've heard, you know, they, they deal with like sorcerous powers and stuff. Yeah. You know, we don't want to fool with that. Yeah. But Kane's like, nah, it's, we, we sacked we, the place. We're here for treasure. We're here yeah. for the treasure. And <laughs> they find themselves like this big hall that's full of weird mirrors. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the frames are like, desiccated flesh or something they yeah, look pretty cool it's a neat design yeah, yeah. Um, and we see like these little demon forms in them little shadow things yeah they're kind of flitting kind of mirror watching. to mirror uh, stalking the group and one of Kane's men gets all chicken shit and he turns to run <laughs> out and Kane puts a bullet in his back yeah that's great it's fucking awesome so immediately you know that he is he's ruthless he's a bastard he's clearly some kind of pirate captain or something like that yeah and he means business <laughs> I want to say when these like demonic creatures start to snatch his crew, they kind of mm-hmm. like flit out of the mirror and grab them. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to levy some more complaints at multiverse of madness here. Okay. To be a 2009 movie. I think the CG in this, especially for it's like, it's like a mid tier budget. I wouldn't say it was like a big budget film. It's not super low budget. It was but, a $40 million movie, yeah. which isn't nothing, but it's also not 200 plus <laughs> right for that budget. I think the CG is like really good and actually holds up pretty well as far as just like how it's blended to the yeah, scenery. Right. Yeah. It's not distracting. It does what it needs to do. And it's oh. not, yeah. Cause when I saw the demon like flitting between the mirrors and popping out and grabbing people, I thought of Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness and there was this whole part where Scarlet Witch like is zipping around and like merging into the, like the background and coming out of it and trying to grab them and stuff. 
and it looks fucking awful. And you can just tell it's just like a total... Really? Like, it doesn't blend with the scenery at all. It was like one of my most angry moments when I had to watch that movie. But hmm. um, to then see a 2009 movie do kind of the same shtick with a less budget... And better. And it looks better. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, that's been a, that's been a frequent complaint with some Marvel movies, though, are weak effects, right? Yeah. So they're probably overtaxing their people. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. That, that's what everyone's talking about now in the, the, the old uh, Marvel news headlines. Mm, yes. Um, so Kane finds himself locked in this throne room. Yep. These big door door sh- double doors shut behind him. And he hears his man getting killed. <laughs> and it's cool because the throne's before him, but like... Before you get to the throne, there's just this big pile. Yeah, big pile of treasure. Treasure, just it's like Scrooge McDuck has been swimming in there or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he's like running his hands through it and everything, and suddenly this like demon forms in the room with him, right? Um, and he says that he is the devil's reaper, and he's here to claim Cain's soul because yep. he's just so freaking evil. <laughs> He tells him he's made a pact, and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't make any pact. Yeah, I didn't make any pact. But it's clear it's more his actions and his way of life right. have yeah. settled this. Killing wantonly for treasure. You know, it's pretty pretty evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so they fight, of course, because Kane's not going down without a fight. Oh, yeah. And the Reaper does have a cool uh, flaming sword. Oh, yeah. I like yeah. the way it it's looks. Because awesome. it looked like, it looked like kind of like molten metal. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like red and white hot and everything, and flames jumping around it. It, it looks good. And he quickly learns what everyone learns when you fight a big demon thing is that you got to have a magic weapon. Right. Obviously. <laughs> you're, not, not, you're not hurting it with that one. It's D&D 101, people. Come on. <laughs> um, so he proceeds to do the um, the smart thing, I think, and yeah. jump out a window. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> he jumps out a window into the water. Not only jumps out a window into the water, but then he flees, abandons everything, and runs away to a monastery. Yep. And becomes very, very devout very fast. We pick up one year later in England. Yes. And he is at a little sanctuary in a monastery. He's renounced his ways. He swears to never kill again. He has all these tattoos all over his body. Yeah, he's got this epic like cross yeah. scarred into his back. Yeah, he says he's learning to be a man of peace. But the high priest there, the main dude, says, you've, you've got to leave, Solomon. You he says he had a, uh, a prophetic dream mm-hmm. about Solomon. Yep. And that he uh, he couldn't tell him what it was or what it's about, but he knows that Solomon needs to leave. Yep. There's some purpose for him, but he, he can't find it there. Uh, the priest says he's got an inheritance to return to. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a home, and Solomon doesn't seem too anxious to go back there. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite. But they kick him out, and then we see him traveling the countryside with his walking stick and, you know, peasant clothes. <laughs> and I like... Show, don't tell, right? Mm-hmm. 101 screenwriting. And I like how this does that because we see him walking and it's it's like winter time. There's like a bit of a snow falling. Yeah. Everything's dark and dreary. He um, He's passing people burning plague victims. Yeah. It's like you, you realize things are bad in this area mm-hmm. and you don't have to someone say like, oh, there's an evil king who's raiding the land. And, right. I mean, you get that later, but once you've already known. You've seen it. Yeah. yeah. There's bodies hanging from trees and from gibbets and things like that. You know, things are not good. <laughs> but his first encounter is also not so great. Um, he gets ambushed. As you do. <laughs> as you do, by a, a few bandits. A group of brigands in the forest. Yes. Classic. But uh, unlike your average D&D player, he does not fight back. Yep. He says, I refuse. He, I, I'm he, a man of peace. He's dedicated to his ways because he thinks that violence is a surefire way to get his soul 
taken to hell. Yep, he thinks if he stays on the straight and narrow, he can somehow avoid his fate. Yep. Uh, but they kick the shit out of him. Yeah. And steal all his shit. <laughs> then take yeah. his shit. And as he's like in this fugue state, he has a flashback. Yeah, yeah. To when he was a kid. Who and his father, I didn't know he was in this movie, but Max von Sydow is his father. Yeah, yeah. I have a cool note about that too, because apparently um, Bassett uh, really, really fought to get him in the film. Um, she said that um, if. Huh? I was going to say that's got to be a Conan nod, right? Because Max von Sydow famously played the king in Conan. I mean, that's part of it, but um, she had said that in his prime, that's who she would have cast to be Ooh. Solomon Kane. Ooh, that's cool. I but, can see that. Given the time old, when they yeah. finally made it, there was no way to do that. And so it seemed fitting then to have him play the father. I can see that. That's cool. And of course, he I mean, he's, he can sleepwalk through a role <laughs> like this. Yeah. So he's great. Um, but yeah, uh, Solomon's talking about how his older brother is going to inherit the kingdom, but he's mm-hmm. a bully. He's a bastard. Terrible person. Yeah. But his father throws him out. Oh, it's interesting, too, because at first he wants Solomon to be devoted to the church. Yeah. That's a typical, like, second son kind of thing. Sure, but, you become a priest. Yeah. Uh, he refuses. He thinks he should have whatever opportunity he wants, which makes his current situation a little ironic. Yeah. Because he ended up there anyways. But yeah, then we get this, the scene you're talking about yeah. of uh, the, what they're out, like, kind of at a cliff's edge near the water. We well, find that out a little bit later. Oh, do we? Okay. At this point, we just see him leaving the castle. Okay, well, we'll put a pin in that. Yeah. And come back to it. Um... So Kane's picked up by this family in a wagon who he had he encountered earlier on the road because mm-hmm. they were offering him a ride and he was like, you know, no thank you, I'll, I'll walk. He's trying to shun all those earthly pleasures. Yeah. And I'm not sure how they found him because they were in the wagon and they were going ahead of him. Although I guess it's possible they had to stay on the road and he was going through the countryside. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but it's the uh, Crowthorns. Yep, Crowthorns. Led by the patriarch Samuel, played by Patrick Hurd Wood. Which he's great in this role. He just has that perfect look of like a a well-meaning family man, group of pilgrims. Uh, indeed. No, wasn't it? no, he was William. William's the father. That was Pete Postlewaite. Oh, blah, blah. Yeah, Pete Postlewaite, who you've seen in a, a hundred movies. Got he, my notes back. Yeah, he's one of those great... Yeah, um, I think it was one of the sons you were talking about. Because there's two sons and a daughter. Yeah, the son is Samuel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the daughter is Meredith, mm-hmm. played by Rachel Hurtwood. Yeah, it's... but they said they're traveling to the West, and they're going to get a boat and go to the New World. Yep. Like all, like all good pilgrims would do in this time. Oh, and the wife, Catherine, is played by Alice Krieg, mm. who played the board queen. There we go. Okay, yeah. In, yeah. in Star Trek First Contact and Voyager. Yeah, she seems so different in this role too. Yeah, yeah. she's a great actress. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a she has a good like, and you wouldn't think it with you go to like the board queen, but there's a good tenderness to her character. Yeah, uh, she really cares for Solomon as far as like, she can see the struggle he's going through. Yeah, I like I like the interaction with him and the family because mm-hmm. you know he's respectful and kind and everything, and, mm-hmm. and they see him bathing at one point. He's got all the tattoos and shit, and they're a little wary of that. Um, <laughs> and Meredith's kind of side-eyeing him. Yeah, well. Um, <laughs> Made me think of The Witch almost. Like, yeah. it, the family and The Witch were a little more pleasant. <laughs> and, and not so hardcore about their religion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the father was uh, fought in the war. And he talks about, talks about how horrible it was. And Yeah, because they get into that conversation about killing. Because Solomon yeah. admits that he used to, he, he's killed a lot of people. And it's like a past he's trying to leave behind. He's, he says that killing came easy to him. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't want to talk about it. 
Uh, and at one point, this is I think he when, during he's he's when he's sleeping, we get a flashback to his encounter with his older brother. Mm. Yeah, that's the other part I was thinking about. Yeah, because he's leaving his castle, um, and he encounters his brother assaulting a maiden, mm-hmm. and he stops him. Rightly so. Yeah, I kind of got the vibe like she was a childhood friend of theirs or something. Yeah, too. yeah. Um, so they're kind of scuffling, and Solomon accidentally pushes him off a cliff. Oops. Oops. Uh, Marcus <laughs> is his older brother's name. Yes. And then he wakes up, and yeah. Um, and the family's leaving for the New World, and they they ask Solomon to join them. And he says that he's done terrible things, and he's an evil man. <laughs> Yeah. And the devil will take him if he strays from his path of peace. And he's worried about staying with them even because he's afraid that like his very presence will put them in danger. Mm-hmm. Which is maybe maybe correct. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not, not good to be worried about. Uh, they come across a village. Yep. It's been burned to the ground. There's bodies everywhere. And they're wondering what the hell happened. And Cain sees this big stake in the middle of the yard. And, yeah. And uh, it looks like fire had erupted from... This was the epicenter of the fire eruption. And he says, oh, they were trying to burn a witch. And something happened. <laughs> she broke free. Yeah. And then conveniently they find the one survivor. Little girl. A wayward little girl. Mm-hmm. And she confirms King's theory. Says that there was a witch. They were burning them. And she, yeah, she... Summoned up hellfire and raised the town. Yep. And uh, so the family's like, well, let's pray before we go to sleep and everything. The little girl <laughs> says she's too tired to pray. Yeah. And then immediately Solomon Cain's like looking at her like, uh-huh. <laughs> Not going to pray, huh? Yeah. So he says, put this cross on for your protection. Yeah. He's like, I really want you to have this for your protection. Here, <laughs> here, take it. Put it in your palm. Which, of course, she refuses to do because she's actually the witch. Yep. And she marks Meredith on her palm. Yeah. She gives her like this black mark. Yeah. And then she turns into like this old crone and flies off in this murder of crows. It's a good effect. I, I quite liked it. Yeah. It was nice. But so we know something ominous is going on. We've got a witch ravaging this area. Some some large group is going around killing people. Yep. Meredith is marked. Can't be a good thing. Yeah, we see the group of brigands from earlier, and they're being recruited by someone. In the credits, he's called the Overlord. Yeah. I don't know if we ever actually get his name. I think in the film a few times, they call him the Masked Rider. Yeah, that's right. Which is weird for me, because common Rider, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess if you hop on a horse and throw on a flesh mask, sure, you can be a masked rider. Why sure, not? why not? <laughs> uh, but yeah, we should say this dude looks fucking badass. Yeah, like, he does look pretty good. Big black armor, billowing cloak, yeah. and, and a fucking mask made of flesh. Right, all stretched and stitched and everything. And he's got like these black tipped fingers, and he uses them to infect these robbers. Yeah. And they become his slaves, basically. And almost like makes them like necrotic and they become like, they're not zombies, but they're zombie-esque. They become very pale and pallid looking. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Yeah, it's good. Um, so of course the family comes upon them. Um, Kane and the brother Samuel, they spot them rounding people up in cages and curling them off. Yeah. And they're talking about that. They all work for a sorcerer named Malachi. Yes. And you hear that name and you know, they're a bad person. Come right. On. And I'm, I'm spoiler it is not that annoying kid from Children of the Corn. <laughs> but that's where your mind goes. That's always. exactly where your mind goes. And that's a criticism I have. I would have chosen a different name. <laughs> a little too on the nose. But whatever. Um, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> um, so Samuel runs back to his camp and he finds the men attacking his family. 
Um, the overlord dude shows up, sees Meredith's hand, says that she's the one. You know, take her. Yep, they capture her, and then they're just going to kill the rest. Yeah, and they taunt Solomon to fight by threatening Samuel. Like, one of the dudes is holding a big blade to his yeah. throat and everything. And Solomon's like, I'm not going to fight. You know, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> and they kill him. They kill the kid. Yeah, they fucking kill the kid. No no remorse, no anything. Nope. The, the older son, they kill him. Um, but after they kill the kid, that was their mistake. Because then Solomon yep. King starts to kick ass. He snaps. Yep. And I pulled the quote because there's a lot of awesome quotes where he just like says shit in this movie. Yeah. Um, but again, they kill the kid. And they're like, come on, what are you going to do about this? Mm-hmm. And he says, if I kill you, I am bound for hell. It is a price I shall gladly pay. Yeah. <laughs> and then dude just goes to town. like, And that's good, like, Robert E. Howard type dialogue, yeah. too. Yeah, he goes to town, kicks their asses. Scavenging, like, weapon to weapon off every person he kills. Mm-hmm. And he just, he decapitates people. He carves them up. And I'll, I will say this. The, the action is, it, while it's not great, it is adequate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, there's no annoying cuts. You could tell they didn't spend a long time with choreography <laughs> yeah. and stuff, but also it doesn't—it doesn't look stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it, it's sufficiently brutal, I think, too. Yeah, and, and, and Purfoy looks good doing it. You know, it looks like he's into it and giving it his all. I think for the type of action that this character would call for, I think it works. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Okay, they take off with Meredith. Uh, the father has been stabbed, he's dying, and Solomon swears to him that he will get her back. Yep, and, and he says, like, your soul will be saved if you can return, Meredith. Because yep. her mother's still alive. William basically even says, like, you know, I, I know I'm a devout man. I know I'm going, you know, to heaven and stuff. If you can do this, you can be redeemed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, he's gearing up, getting the shit together. This is where we get the iconic look. Yeah. He picks up the pilgrim hat. Yeah, gets the cloak, puts that on. And he notices that when the minions die, the, the infected ones, they turn back to normal. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, though, what's Alice Creed going to do here all by herself? <laughs> we just got to, like, bury her sons and yeah. husband and... <laughs> anyway. And sadly, we don't really revisit her either. No, the there's, the there's like, a voiceover thing at the end, but mm-hmm. that's it. Um, and then we get kind of a montage of King yeah. just going around killing fuckers and freeing prisoners. It's funny because it made me think in contrast to like Lord of the Rings. You have like the adventure shots of them just like running through the open lands mm-hmm. and the music swelling. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then you go over to Kane and it's just him like mowing a line of death <laughs> through, in pursuit. Through dirt and mud yeah. and grime. <laughs> and he has a locket given to him by the father that's got Meredith's image. He's asking people if they've seen her and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I like how he even takes the time to apologize to one of the prison yeah. peoples. Because he, he keeps, you know, saying, have you seen her? Have you seen her? Yeah, they're afraid of him. Yeah, yeah. They, they just watched him, like, carve up a whole army. And she's like, oh, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is kind of refreshing to see a hero who is good. Mm-hmm. You know, who isn't, like, an anti-hero. Yeah. You know, he's not like the fucking Punisher or something. Right. You know, he, is, he is actually trying to do good and be right. good. There's no, like... The, the line he crosses is that he will kill. It's not like... He doesn't want to. He would uncharacteristically kill someone without reason or something. Right. Not like his old self. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, see, he comes upon this burned-out church. Yeah, nice place to hold up for the night. Mm-hmm. As good as any. And something else I'll say about the movie, I do like the sets. Oh, yeah. Everything looks nice. You know, it doesn't look cheap. 
I don't think they, they may have used some real locations. I'm not sure. I think they shot a lot in Eastern Europe. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but everything looks good, you know, and it's pretty atmospheric. Most of the shots are dark. Yeah. That's a good looking movie. Yeah. You could almost give the film like a horror tag. I don't think like, it's not straight up horror, but it has like those tones of yeah. horror in there. Yeah. And that's one of my chief complaints of a lot of fantasy films. Like the sets look, especially for the low budget ones, they look like <laughs> cardboard sets. They, yeah, they yeah. look like shit. Are they, are they too clean and neat? Mm-hmm. Not lived in, and I think that's a problem I'm going to have with D and D movie when it comes out because mm, all the tra- everything just looks way too clean and neat. We well, just got everyone running around casting prestidigitation everywhere. So sure, sure, <laughs> that's a thing. That's possible. <sighs> anyway, um, yeah. So he's there praying. He thinks he's alone. He thinks he's alone, but he's not. Yeah, there's a there's a priest who seems a little disturbed. Yeah, a little shell shocked, maybe. Uh, he explains that the riders came through and sacked the whole town. He mm-hmm. managed to survive. And we actually get an idea of the location, because he says they're at the borderland of Somerset and Devonshire. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I'm thinking, what's Queen Elizabeth doing about all of these people <laughs> going across her country and slaving everyone? Listen, man, that's the countryside. That don't matter. <laughs> what's going on in London? It's business as usual. <laughs> and it also took me way too long to realize who was the monarch at this time. <laughs> felt dumb after I realized, oh, wait, yeah. And I, I keep thinking, oh, in Shakespeare, somewhere scribbling a play at this point. <laughs> There's a production going on at the Globe right now. <laughs> it, it is weird to think about, because you, you almost could be forgiven for thinking it is like a fantasy world. Sure, yeah. Um, but that's kind of what's cool about the character, is that he's couched in, like, historical setting. Yeah. and I do like it. I do like that. Um... Yeah, and the priest gives him some information. He talks about Malachi. He's the man who controls the overlord. Yeah, and he says that they, they kill the strong, like the, the the grown men that could fight back and stuff, unless they'll pledge to mm-hmm. join. Um, but a lot of the weaker people, they're capturing and taking back for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out this priest reveals that he's hiding a bunch of cursed men and women who were his flock. Yep. And they look, they look like ghouls. Yeah, they're straight up zombies, man. They look way different than the other people who have gotten infected. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, he opens up like the, a trap door, and they're just kind of sitting, standing down there looking up. And it's fairly creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like their design a lot. Yeah, and they're just kind of like just staring there looking. <laughs> and the priest says that he feeds them. And Solomon's like, feeds them, you feed them what? <laughs> so, of course, he pushes Solomon down in there with them. And this is pure Robert E. Howard, yeah. this part. Because we get a torch-wielding Puritan swordsman fighting a bunch of ghouls in the dark. I mean, that's... Yeah. And it's badass, because at first you think it's just like a little trapdoor room, but it's actually like connected to the catacombs yeah. that run under this church. Yeah, and he's running around fighting, trying to get away from them, and they're you know ganging up on them. And it's great. It's, it's pure pulp. Mm-hmm. I love it. I want more stuff like that. Please. It's freaking awesome. Um, eventually he finds a way out and they don't follow him. It's like their, their skin burns. Yeah. They're afraid of like the actual, I guess the consecrated ground, yeah. I guess. Cause he's in a graveyard. Uh, maybe these are something different. Maybe they are like <laughs> some sort of a ghoul or something. Oh, and an interesting part too is when they, he cuts one of them and they turn on that one that yeah. was cut and just start devouring it. Um, yeah, very ghoulish. But he's out. He's in the graveyard. 
But then he is beset upon again by those brigands. His old friends. <laughs> Only they're a little different now because they're all eviled out. Yep. And they're like, oh, you're not going to fight, are you? <laughs> <laughs> but he's over that phase. He immediately kills two of them. Just yeah. no problem. And he interrogates the survivor because he's needing some info to mm-hmm. find Meredith. And he's threatening them to throw him to the ghouls. Mm-hmm. And I love when he holds his head over the, the pit. Yeah. And he's like, no! <laughs> Even this guy's afraid of them. Um, but he says, no, that Meredith's dead. Yeah. They already killed her. Yeah. And Kane is devastated. Yep. And he just throws him into the ghouls. Um, yeah, and then we get, he, we see him drinking in a tavern. Yeah, it kind of cuts. It's been a while. He's, yeah, he made it, it to a town. Makes it to a town. He's drinking at the tavern. It's very much like uh, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark moment. Yeah. Like when Indy thinks that Marion's dead, he uh-huh. goes to get yeah, yeah. drunk. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's a few people kind of watching him. They're kind of, is, is that him? Is that the guy? Yeah. Yeah, he's approached by a couple of guys who used to be under his command. Yeah, they used to serve on one of his ships. Yep. And they want him to lead them again. Yeah, they said they formed a little resistance against Malachi. They're going to try to stop him. And yeah. They, and they want Cain's leadership. And Solomon's like, just get the fuck out of my face. I don't <laughs> care. He doesn't care anymore. Unfortunately, the Masked Rider and his men are already there. Yep. And they creep into Cain's room and take him. And out in the square, they're crucifying all the people that were defying Malachi. And again, this is pretty badass, this like metal moment of like straight up nailing the people to the crosses yeah. and lifting them up. Yep. Uh, and they even crucify Cain. Yeah. And he's, he's given up at this point. He's not yeah. even fighting. He's just like, yeah, just just kill me. You know, maybe I'll, maybe my soul won't go to hell. <laughs> um, but it creates a good like parallel, I guess, to like biblical concepts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. To have him crucified in this moment. It's also a nice nod to Conan. The movie and the short story. I think it was A Witch Shall Be Born, where we find, uh, we meet Conan in that story crucified. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and in the movie, they crucify him to the tree of woe. So every hero has to go to that. <laughs> they have to go to their lowest moment mm-hmm. and then basically get resurrected. And this is what happens to Cain because he sees and hears Meredith. Yeah, being, as they're like hanging them, the carts are coming through. They're bringing along all, all the, the people who are trapped. And she just happens to glance up and notice him because he's kind of in the central spot yeah. among these. She calls out to him and he realizes like, no, no, she's alive. It's not all over. Yeah. So he begins to fight again, pulls his hands off the <laughs> nails. Dude, fucking epic to you that moment. He yeah. just rips his hands off. Um, yeah, he jumps down. And I mean, he's kind of screwed though, but luckily... A group of uh, those rebels come out, much of the yep. men come out and save him. And we get to the point where he's healing up a little bit. And his men are pledging loyalty to him. They think that he'll destroy the evil. I like it too because the, the lady that uh, treats his wounds, they talk about her a little bit because she's pagan. Yeah. And he kind of like rebuffs her. Yeah. <laughs> he still thanks her, but he's like, eh. I keep your pagan magic away from me. <laughs> Uh, and then we get some more backstory here. Talking about how Malachi was a priest who sold his soul for power. Mm-hmm. And the mass Rider is a servant. Uh, they know the castle that Malachi is at. And it happens to be Cain's ancestral home. Uh-oh. Yeah. It seems like some threads are tying up together in this little uh-huh. story. So Cain's like, okay, I grew up there. I can get us in. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. Like, he knows all the secret entrances. Yeah. So they stick into the courtyard. 
and immediately we see that little girl. She's like up on the balcony. Yeah. And uh, she taunts Kane, and she gets a sword thrown at her and, and killed for her trouble. But all of Malachi's men comes out, yep. and there's a nice big brawl. The full armada. And in the chaos, Kane manages to make it inside and heads down to the dungeons. Yep, he has, a quick, he has a quick everyone. fight with the Overlord. Yeah. Oh yeah, they, they do. They tussle a little bit. Yeah, and he's uh, pretty well matched, <laughs> but yeah. not not a definitive conclusion. Right. Yeah, right. He gets into the castle, starts looking for Meredith. He's freeing prisoners. Um, he thinks he's found a random old man in one cell, but shock! It's it Max von Sydow. Yeah, it's his father, <laughs> Josiah Kane. So Josiah tells him that Marcus did not die from his da, da, fall off da. the cliff, but he was extremely badly hurt. And maimed in the face. Yeah. So uh, King's father brought Malachi to his castle to restore Marcus. Yes, through magic. But of course, you know, you mess with dark magic and dark magicians, you're going to get fucked over. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, Malachi made Marcus into the overlord and enslaved and imprisoned Josiah. Okay, now I gotta ask you. Mm-hmm. Did you ever suspect that the Overlord was his brother? Um, I can't answer that honestly <laughs> because I was looking at the credits. Oh, okay, okay. And it listed, and I kind of hate it when they do this, but it listed the actor playing both yeah, his brother. That's Samuel Roken. And Overlord, yeah. Yeah, it's Marcus Kane slash Overlord. So unfortunately, that was spoiled for me. What about uh, you? Did you um, see it coming? So I didn't see it coming, and, and Tiffany kind of embarrassed me because she should have watched this with me. Mm-hmm. She dug it. She she was into it. Nice. She, she liked how violent it was. Good. Um, but so she has no conception at all. She's never even read a Solomon Kane story. She's just watching this movie. Sure. And I, I told her like the basically the synopsis. Oh, he's a Puritan that fights evil. Um, and so she sees the the Overlord. Like, oh, that's cool. Um. After she saw the backstory where they do the flashback and he pushes his brother off the cliff, the next time the Overlord was on screen, she was like, oh, so that dude's his brother. And I was like, how? And she's like, their hair is the same. Like, completely the same. If you look at the hair of the... Of <laughs> that the, is such a girl thing. If you look at the hair this. of the brother in the flashback and then the hair that the Overlord has, it's the same hairstyle, 100%. It's, yeah. it's going to be it's gonna be him, isn't it? And I was like... She's not wrong. Just keep watching. <laughs> That's a great girl observation. I yeah. love it. Cracked me up. I was like, man, I feel fucking stupid now. I was like, oh my God, it's his brother. The first time. Nice. <laughs> Maybe that's just a me problem. Well. I don't yeah. know. If you've seen this movie, write in and let us know. Did you know that the Overlord was his brother? That's your research question for the day. Or did someone notice his hairstyle? <laughs> um. So his father wants Solomon to kill him. Mm-hmm. Because he's been kept alive by, you know, sorcerous means and wishes to finally die. Mm-hmm. And they kind of resolve, too. Like, uh, he sort of apologizes to Solomon yeah. for the way he treated him. and They make up at the end. Yeah. Nice little moment before he kills him. Before he puts a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bullet into his stomach. Um, let's see. Okay. So then he knows Malachi's got to go. He's got to stop him. Yep. Um, so he goes to the throne room, confronts Malachi, finds Meredith in the cage there. And immediately we get some weird vibes because one of those mirrors is here. Yeah. Same as we saw in the fortress in the opening. A really big one, though. Yeah. Huge. Uh, what did you think of the way Malachi looks? 
so if I have, I've been like praising this film throughout. If I have to give any criticisms, I think Malachi's look is a little, a little weak. I think it's a little weak. He's got like scars and shit all over. Like half of his face looks like a page of a book. Yeah, it looks like he was like scribing a book and then fell asleep on it, <laughs> <laughs> and the ink was just transferred to his face. I mean that that one part is kind of cool because I dig like um, you know like Clive Barker, the books of blood, yeah. where you got the guy that's got like the stories being written into his skin or stuff, right. Like, I would play a D&D character like that, where it's like their tome is, like, scribed on their body oh, or sure. something. And yeah, you're constantly putting in new spells. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think this, it's a larger problem for me. We can talk more about this later. But the villain, I, I hate it when the villain isn't doesn't show up until the end. Like, yeah. you hear about them, but then we, don't meet, we meet them at the end, and it's like, you know, some dude. And so much is set on the Overlord... Then when you get to Malachi, it's kind of underwhelming. Like, the Overlord's already more badass yeah. than his master. Yeah. He's like a serial killer <laughs> in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Uh, um, let's see. Okay, so Malachi does some shit where he vanishes. Yeah, he's teleporting around. Meredith urges Solomon to leave, so it's a trap. Yeah, because he's trying to free him from the cage, but uh, the Overlord shows up and stabs him through the back, like through the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And Kane tries to talk to him because he's like, you know, I, I talked it out with my father. Let's see, but uh, the the old bro's too far gone. Yeah, too far gone. He's he's basically just a mindless servant at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a pretty cool scene where uh, his brother's he's, he's caught on fire. Yeah, but he's still fighting. So it's a pretty cool fire stunt. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, still, it's really well executed. Still sword too. fighting while on, and it's real fire. It's not mm-hmm. crappy CG shit. <laughs> But still, like, to be in that moment, he's still making the swings and stuff. Yeah. And, and they're crashing. Great. and Yeah, that's not easy to do when you're on fire. Yeah, so, pretty hats, cool stunt. Hats off to the stunt team. Yeah. But this is the big showdown between Solomon and the Overlord. And you know our guy, Kane's yeah, going to win. Kane does defeat him at the end. Um, but Malachi has this big mirror, and there's, like, this big demon on the other side of it that he says is going to claim Kane's soul. Mm-hmm. So Malachi uses Meredith's blood, because she's an innocent, to open the mirror. Yeah, I wonder if it's supposed to be kind of like you know blood of a virgin yeah, kind of thing. I guess. I'm not sure what the whole mark thing was about. It doesn't really. Wasn't well, that a classic witch thing? They put like a mark upon someone and curse them. Yeah, I mean they usually have a devil's mark of some sort, but nah, eh, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just vaguely right enough to work. Yeah. <laughs> so then this big CG. Demon slash golem thing comes out. Yeah. So it looks almost mechanical, but it's like fiery on the inside and kind of demonic looking. It's not bad. The CG here is a little iffier. This is the worst the CG ever is. Yeah. But it's still blended pretty decently. It's not terrible. It didn't take me out of the movie. Especially once it starts to come after Kane and we see him dodging around like... It, there is a wait to like when an attack comes in and he jumps out of the way. Yeah, it's kind of big and lumbering. It reminds yeah. me of the um, cave troll scene in okay. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good comparison. Yeah, where they're hiding behind the pillars and yeah. stuff like that, and it's kind of big and clumsy. Um, <laughs> and the, that's another problem I have is that it's very kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, because how, how are you going to really fight a big CG guy like yeah, on this right. budget? Uh, so Kane pretty much just shoots Malachi in the fucking head. Uh, which is smart, I think. It's you know, smart. Uh, take out the wizard. Yeah, I, and I don't mind that. It's just, it just seems so abrupt. Mm-hmm. It's almost like 
they were making the movie and they're like, oh, we're, we're running over budget and over time and shooting too many pages. Let's just cut to the chase. Let's just... Uh, he shoots him in the fucking head. <laughs> so then, like, that opens up the mirror and Malachi gets sucked in there. Which and... they never dwell on it, but I kind of like this idea that, like, these mirrors are like a gateway to summon between... Sure. Like, hell and, portals. and the real world. That's cool. Uh, and the big demon thing gets shook back in there. And it's almost like, because there's like this ray of light going through Cain as well, and you think yeah. his soul's being taken or something. Um, but no, he's okay. Yeah, he, he wakes up and Meredith's by his side. Yep. And Cain tells Meredith that her father told him that if he saved her, his soul would be redeemed. And he says, the devil now has no claim on me. And then in a voiceover, we hear Cain says that Meredith was returned to her mother, and uh-huh. that he's found his purpose. Yep. And he gears up, he's got his cloak and his hat and everything, and rides off on a horse. He's going to fight evil. He's going to roam the earth and fight the forces of darkness wherever they might appear. <laughs> what do you mean, walk the earth? <laughs> I said Rome. <laughs> I know, I Pulp Fiction thing, sorry. <laughs> um, and that's the end of the movie. Boom, boom. Nice little origin story for Solomon Kane. Yep. Which is maybe where we should start. Um, in the stories, Kane never really had an origin story. No, he just started off... A Puritan fighting evil. Yeah. And at times they did hint about kind of what his background was, but they never really came out and told you. Sure. Which is one thing I kind of like about the film is they tried to like extrapolate. Like if we have all these stories, we have these few clues about who he was. Like they, the, it's like a fact he was some sort of terrible person before yeah. he became this hero. Uh, fact, we know the time era that he's in and he would have grown up in. And then it's like, how do we, we know he's like skilled at fighting. He's a skilled adventurer. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do we extrapolate that into a backstory? Yeah. Right. An origin Mm form. And and movies are obsessed with origin stories. I personally don't always need them. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, how many times have we had Spider-Man's origin story? Right, and it's the same thing over and over, or Batman. Yeah. You know, we, we know who he is. Just make the fucking movie. And I, I respected that so fucking much about the new, the Batman, that it was just yeah. like, boom, he's it's, Batman. He's Batman. He's a fucking detective. What do you, you want? You already know. Let's <laughs> yeah. just go. Here's a, here's a story about him doing a thing. Yeah. Um, now, this character is less known, mm-hmm. so I don't fault them for doing an origin story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me get through all the history of this, because it's all interesting. Right. So right. this all started... In 1997, when Wandering Star optioned film and publishing rights to the Solomon Kane property. They got that from the Robert E. Howard estate. They had big plans. They were going to, you know, really push this as like a character. Uh, Fantasy was kind of on a rise at the time. So Mm -hmm. this seemed like prime real estate to sit on. Yep. So in 2001, they announced that Christopher Lambert was offered the role of Kane. And he was very much considering it. And he thought it was a compelling concept. I could see that. I could see that. I'm, I'm glad Lambert didn't wind up playing him, No, because Purefoy fucking kills it in yeah, this movie. Yeah, he's great. He's the best thing about the movie, easily. Um, let's see. Don Murphy was a producer on the film. Um, Samuel Hadida of Davis Film and Paul Barrow and Michael Barrow of Wondering Star Pictures. That was kind of the production heads at the time on all of this. And they were trying to get a deal with New Line Cinema. Lord of the Rings. Why not? Yep. <laughs> hey, Lord of the Rings did well. Well, here's another fantasy property for you. Uh, they should have done that instead of Golden Compass. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> Misstep. Uh, Murphy left the project in 2003 under a cloud when negotiations fell apart with New Line. It then became quiet, and during this time, several scripts were developed. 
and then kind of trashed and redeveloped. And at this time, they were really going to make this first film be one of his like African set adventures. Mm. That was kind of what they were trying to pull on. That'd be cool. Um, I think there was a vibe of like, we can only do one movie probably. They wanted a trilogy though. Yeah, that was the, that was the dream. But if they, we can only do one, let's do the Africa stuff. Because mm-hmm. that's got the most going on. Um, so then they bring in MJ Bassett. Um, she was going to both write and direct the film. And um, kind of the idea they gave her is that, you know, we're going to do a trilogy and we want this first film to be an origin story that's more just, you know, let's extrapolate from the text and make up an origin film for Solomon Kane. Fair enough. Uh, 2006, that script was finished. So then 2007, the next year, they cast James Purefoy for the lead, locked him in. Um, and then 2008 in Prague, they finally started filming. It was a 12-week shoot. Uh, I have a cool pull quote from Bassett about Purefoy. Um, she said, he's a delight to work with. He's giving his heart and soul to this. I think he's in brilliant physical shape, and his sword fighting is just brilliant to behold. And I think that he's finding the depth and sophistication within the character in a way that I always hoped would happen when we made this film. Yep. Uh, let's Great see. Great casting. She nailed that one. Da, da, da. Ba, ba, ba. Uh, oh, sp- I, I have some of this. Some of the aerial sequences, like the big wide shots of like mm-hmm. countryside, they were shot at Stonhope and St. Abbs in the Scottish borders. Makes so sense. You, you were spot on about the like locations. Yeah, okay. Now, what were you going to say, my friend? Oh, um, director, MJ Bassett. Um, have you seen only did two movies before this? Had you seen either? One is Death Watch and the other is Wilderness. Oh, let me bring it up real quick because I was looking at those and they seemed familiar to me a little bit. I want to say... I want to say I've seen Death Watch. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. I just It's been a long time. Um... And you know, didn't Bassett also do the second Silent Hill movie, Revelations? She did. did. Which is not the best, but I don't think it's her fault. No. But Death Watch and Wilderness are both pretty good. Wilderness especially. I recommend that one. And I did not know that she directed Solomon Kane as well. Yeah. Um, So I would check those out for sure. Um, One thing I just want to say briefly is that uh, she is trans and she came out in 2017. Mm. So awesome. Good for her. Killer. And oh, and she's finishing up Red Sonia right now. Like a film? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's yep. awesome. It is in post production. So we know that she's got the experience yeah, and the that, cred that, that to do something kind of sword like and the sorcery sword thing. and sorcery thing, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, let's see what else I've got on here in the old notes. The film's budget was confirmed at forty million, which you brought up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was produced by a consortium of French, Czech, and British companies. Predominantly filmed in the Czech Republic. Sadly, it only made like half of that back. Yeah, it, it didn't do the greatest. Um, so we did not get a trilogy. <laughs> if we pull the old Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 67% rating, which I think is a little unkind to this movie. Actually, it's higher than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, the film has a novelized version written by Ramsey Campbell, which is kind of kind of neat. Yeah, and Ramsey Campbell finished some of the fragments that Robert E. Howard wrote yeah, of yeah. Solomon Kane. Uh, let's see. Purefoy said that to prepare for the film, he read the entirety of Howard's nice. writings. Nice. And he also then did research on the lifestyle and kind of the, the culture of the Puritans. So he could portray that well as well. 
He does have a cool accent that he uses, like some inflections and I like stuff. It. Yeah, it's it's hard to pin down. I would never try to emulate it because I'm bad at no, accents anyways. Yeah. But uh, Let's see, what else? Oh, this was just a funny note from production. For a lot of the fight sequences, Bassett would come out with like an amp and play heavy metal music. Nice. To like really get everyone in the mood to be like, yeah, let's make this awesome action scene. I like her even more now. Uh, also during filming, during one of the big sword fights, Purefoy got a deep cut in his forehead and had to go get stitches. And Ooh. then for some of the later close-ups they shot, they had to digitally erase the stitches. He also injured his knee during filming. So this guy really... Throws himself into Really it. gave his all for this film. Nice. Um, let's see. We got the Max von Sydow stuff. Um, you you mentioned so the King Osric thing, which was another good tie. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, a bunch of interesting fantasy connections on this film. So several of the people in this movie went on to star in Game of Thrones. You've got uh, Rory McCann, Sidal again, Mackenzie Crook, and Ian White. Oh, nice. They played, uh, respectively, I don't watch Game of Thrones, so I'm going to rattle through these names. Sandor, the Three-Eyed Raven, and Oral, Gregor, um... And one of them played a White Walker, apparently. Mm. <laughs> I don't fucking know Game of Thrones. You so. should really watch Game of Thrones, dude. It's good. It's exhausting. <laughs> we, we've had this conversation. I'll have it on air now, just so it's in record. But uh-huh. when I watched the first few episodes, I was like, I don't fucking care. You know what I want is the show that is Jon Snow and Tyrion, and they're just on a fucking adventure. <laughs> they're fighting crime and righting wrongs cutting across Westeros. Cut, cutting it up, being awesome, getting into battles. <laughs> And then the rest they of They meet it, like three times in the entire yeah. saga. That that first time kind of hooked me and I was like, this this is a good duo. I can see this is some like, you know, yeah. Fawford and the Grey Mouser stuff. Oh, um, that would be cool. But that's not what Martin wanted and that's fine. And if you dig it, it's awesome. Um, it's not my cut of fantasy. I like so. Game of Thrones. I even like the ending of Game of Thrones. I do not have a problem with the last season at all. Wow. Yep. Uh, let's see. They had a funny incident with shooting at night on some of their location shots. Um, there was a constant hooting of owls in the area, oh. and it made it very hard to capture any kind of audio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. His family castle, Axmouth Castle, it's not real. It was made for the movie. Um, but here's well, more fun facts. Uh, south of Great Britain, east to Devon, there's a coastline, a natural nature reserve, named um, the Axmouth to Lyme Rages Undercliffs. Hmm. And that was kind of like the inspiration for the setting of his castle. Interesting. Um, let's see. Oh, the whole like on fire stunt thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a note about that. So when they were filming that, Purefoy missed his mark and he hit the stuntman who was on fire on the wrong shoulder. Ooh. <laughs> I'm sure he appreciated that. And they said the stuntman put his hand out and made a no sign with his fist and then pointed to the shoulder that he was supposed to hit. And he did all this while he was burning. Jesus. So yeah, everybody on this was like a badass. Yeah, apparently. Um, and then here's the big thing we talked about. This was going to be a trilogy that was planned from the start. Um, the two other films, one was going to be focused on the North American stuff and then one was going to be focused on the Africa stuff. Cool. So that's a pretty good trilogy because it's kind of the three main locales that yeah. Kane 
adventured around in. I'll give them credit for actually ending this movie, though. It doesn't yeah. end on the cliffhanger. Right. You, know, you don't. There's not any unleft questions. Yeah, it's just you no know setups. Solomon Kane's going to go out there and fight evil. There's no post-credit thing where <laughs> right. you know they lock co- themselves into something. A and portal opens and Conan comes out and he's like, "Solomon, <laughs> I need your help." Get in the portal. <laughs> um. And then just the last little bit, awards and stuff. It, it came close to greatness, I guess, in some aspects, but never won anything. Um, it was nominated in 2014 for a Saturn Award for the Best DVD Blu-ray Release. <laughs> That's a thing. <laughs> um, apparently. And then it won a Fantasporto 2010 Audience Jury Award for Best Director for Bassett. Okay. That's, She's that's a good director. She is. She directed the hell out of this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... That's that's all the fun notes I have. Well, what do you think about this movie? I quite like it. I've, yeah. I've been praising it most of this time. Mm-hmm. Um, should we just launch into final thoughts, I guess? Yeah, yeah sure. Do it. Um, so I think for like a mid-budget fantasy film, I think they use their budget excellently. And there's not a lot I can point at to be like, oh, that doesn't look so good. That's kind of bad. No. Like, like there's weak areas. Like that final CG like metal armor demon thing. It's not the greatest, but it, I mean, there's way worse yeah, than it could have been. Yeah, it's not egregious. Um, like especially like the bl- the C- when there is CG, it's blended very well. That it's so so minor. Yeah. And again, I point at newer Marvel movies where they are just fucking it up so bad. And, and they use real blood. People yeah. get cut and stuff, so it's none of that crappy digital blood shit. Um, I think you know Bassett wrote the script, and I think the script is like so well written because like I, I, I we didn't use many of them, but I wrote down so many quotes from this film of like shit that he says that are yeah. just like perfect one-liners that sound just like something you would read in one of the stories mm-hmm. pulled out perfectly. Yeah. Um, bu- 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 bu. um, there's even some fun, like head nods. This was one note. I actually stuck it in the wrong spot, but, um, this is their like a- attention to detail to the stories. I-, I would say to throw this in. So, um, there's a part whenever, I think it's when Kane is first like getting to know the family. And he mentions that he sailed with Admiral Drake. And so that's actually a reference to a poem that Howard made about Cain called The One Black Stain. And in that poem, it's Cain talking about Drake's execution of Sir Thomas Doty in 1578. Oh, neat. And so that's why in the um, in the movie, when he says, you know, I sailed with Admiral Drake, and they're like, oh, what was that like? And he says, that didn't end well. Hmm. Okay. Neat. Yeah, fun little connection. Yeah. Um, Masked Rider is fucking badass. If you need a good antagonist for a movie, like, ah. Uh, Overlord, just ooh, crazy flesh mask, super badass black armor. Yeah, um, he feels more like he could have been a Conan villain, I think, than a Solomon Kane villain. But yeah, I could see that. Um, they do kind of set him up well. So, and you're right, he should have been the main villain. He should have been the main villain. Yeah, it should have all Malachi is underwhelming. Just make that final fight like longer, and yeah. that's good enough. Yeah. At the end, he reveals who he is. He's all fucked up. You know, yeah. you, you don't need Malachi. You really yeah. don't. You could even have him kill Malachi before the final battle or something. Like, yeah. like oh, here's the evil wizard. And then he's just like, run, yeah. run him through or something. That wasn't so hard. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, as far as like the source material, because I wanted to talk about that. Like, is this a good adaptation of Solomon Kane? I, I think it is. It does delve into things that we don't have from the stories. Like, mm-hmm. there is no thing of like, he was the son of a king and has this inheritance and all of that. And... Maybe he was a pirate. It's highly suggested he could have been a pirate, but we're never told that. Yeah. So all of that is extrapolations they've made. And I, I've seen online where people are just like, oh, fuck this movie because they're they're taking Solomon Kane and making shit up. But I think that to me, as someone that's read all the stories, I think this is a logical yeah. extrapolation. They're not coming the up with anything that is completely against the character as we know him. 
you know. Um, that final act, it is messy. It does have a bit of the, the Marvel movie syndrome, which is funny because it's 2009. But, um, you know, just that thing of like, I guess superhero movies now in general where you get to the end and no matter what's been going on, there's a big CG thing mm-hmm. you got to deal with. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, not such a new idea, I guess. No. Um, but to that for that to be like the worst moment of the film, and I, I, it sucks we don't have Michael to give his input because... yeah. He only told us a few things, and in passing, at first he was like, I remember it being awesome. And then once he rewatched it, he was like, I still liked it, but oh, that third act is kind of rough. I, I would say just the last 10 minutes yeah. is really the only thing I have a real problem with. Uh-huh. It doesn't kill the movie. Not not at all. Um, and it, it kills me because, too, like I wish we could have got the sequels to this. Because there's so many things, if you if you know the stories... Like the Africa stuff, everything with Nlonga and getting like the the crazy staff that he has. Yeah. Um, there's awesome villains they could have used, like Lulu, who is this like French bandit that he fucking tracks like from Europe to America to finally Africa to finally kill this guy. Yeah, he's just this terrible dude that just slaughters people. Um, there's cool monsters. There's like Nakari, the vampire queen. There's this whole yeah. like secret tribe of vampires in Africa. So pulpy, it's very so pulpy, good. very actiony, crazy. Uh, the Staff of Solomon, that's the name of that crazy yeah. staff. Um, it's supposed to be connected back to like King Solomon. King Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, all kinds of cool lore they could have delved into. We're never going to get them. If, if we ever get more Solomon Kane, it'll be from someone trying again from scratch, which is a damn shame. Yeah, especially when this one came so close to yeah. know, being you know, a success. And I think as a film, it is a success, but I mean yeah. like more of a financial success. So all that said, if I have to put a star rating on it, yeah, I know that uh, there are problems. It's not a perfect film, right? I get that, but I'm still at like a rock solid four on this one because I think it's it's so good. It's a great adaptation of the source material. It does everything you want. Um, it's even a good contrast for like at the time we had Lord of the Rings as like the gold standard, mm-hmm. and then this is doing like a darker fantasy kind of thing, and it right. does it well in a way where the violence is there, the action is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is still like a good story and a good through line. Yeah. So yeah, quite love it. Solid on a four. Nice. Okay. Where are you at, my friend? Um, I feel pretty much the same way you do. I think it is a good origin story. If we need one, it's pretty good. It's pretty decent. Which we should say, you don't need one. You don't need one. But don't note need out one. there, if anyone wants to come back to Solomon Kane. But I, I, the beginning for me really sets everything up because I love how he portrays yeah. Solomon Kane as a bloodthirsty bastard. And to get to see him, because that's one thing in the stories, you never see that. He yeah. hints at it. And it, it's, it would be so much less effective if he just, like, talking to the family and he just told them, oh, I was horrible, I was evil. Yeah. Because um, that kind of makes, makes me think of Unforgiven. Oh, Because okay. we just yeah, hear yeah. about how bad Clint Eastwood's character we was. We never see it. We yeah. didn't see it. True. You know, it's much more effective, I think, seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, show, don't tell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And Purfoy obviously loved playing that part. Oh God! I, I would just, two more films of him just doing this <laughs> yeah. would be amazing. Um, I like the attention to period detail. It looked nice. You know, it was obviously set in the real world, but not like slavishly the real world. Right. You know. Um. It was shot well. It looked nice. Sets were nice. Mm. You know, we didn't talk much about the score, and I don't. I don't think it's like a standout score. There's not like an iconic. But it's not, music, it's but, not distracting either. Um, it serves the purpose well. It, it does its it, job. It's moody when it yeah. needs to be. It's it's no Polydorus, but yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> it, it does um, the job. It's, it's not like Lord of the Rings where you have some, kind of those iconic like little yeah. tunes that stick in your head. but Mo- Motifs that recur mm-hmm. and are so memorable. But it, it's acceptable. Yeah. 
Honestly, my only real issue with this movie is is the villains. Mm. Malachi's weak. Right. For sure. Um, you're right about the Masked Rider. He looks cool. He was the guy. He should have been the, the, <laughs> the big bad. The first time he walked out of his trailer fully done up, they should have been like, no, we have to change it. This is the guy. Yeah. And Malachi should have just been like this, you know, evil, twisted old wizard mm-hmm. that King's father brought in and did the job. And But he's actually more of a servant to right. You know, and that could even be the thing is that like, or he gets away at the end, you know, and yeah. he's still out there and Kane has to go get him or something. That's, that's a lot more interesting. I think, um, the ending was so rushed. That's one of my biggest complaints. Yeah. It really felt like they were like, okay, we, we got to wrap this up. <laughs> um, but other than that, I think it's, I think it's a good representation of what Robert E. Howard had in mind. I think he would like it. Yeah. I think if he saw the movie, he would dig it. Um, I'm at a three and a half. Oh. You didn't expect that much, did you? I thought you were going to go maybe a three tops. Three and a half. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Because the good parts of the movie are so good. Mm-hmm. Like James Purfoy and the attention to detail, the cinematography, sets. Yeah, I will say that. Like when this film is working, it is five stars all the way. Yeah, it's fine. If it, if it could have numbers. kept that the entire runtime, it would mm-hmm. just be, oh, so good. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I want to know what Michael thinks in depth about it. Maybe he can share his thoughts with us sometime. I'm sure we'll have him on sometime, and we can, like, footnote it and just do, like, a, you know, here, take, like, five minutes and give your spiel on it. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, I think it's a good choice. It fits well with the fantasy genre that we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. Criminally underseen, I think, It is criminally underseen. So get out there and watch it. The Blu-ray is still in print. You can pick it up. It's, like, ten bucks, usually. It's just, like, another uh, movie that James Perfoy was in, John Carter. Mm, yeah, criminally underseen. Yeah, there was nothing wrong with it either. It's it a great, great movie. Yeah. I like it a lot. I really do. And, and that's another one too, where if you're talking about like let's adapt this old literary work and like mm. try to do it, I think they did it well. Yeah. Yep. So another uh, great fantasy film. Yep, and glowing recommendations from us. Get out there and find it. Uh, to stream this one, we had to do what was it? The Roku channel. It's on the Roku channel for free. Um, Roku channel is basically like Tubi, but just different stuff. So. Yeah. But also, if you go to any half-price books, you could probably find this for like $4. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. It's easy to get at. Yeah. And I have the blue. It's nice. Um, probably should have won that award, I'm going to say. Why not? Yeah, why it's not? It's pretty good. Yeah. So are we going to keep this uh, successful series of fantasy films going? <sighs> There's a lot riding on me because you, you guys both just had killer picks. That's right. Um. And I've juggled a few. I've got one that's like my artsy pick. That's like, do I want to try to show off to everybody that's listening and be like, oh, mm-hmm. Dustin Highbrow. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've got my like trashy pick that's like, mm-hmm. I, I just kind of want to do it. I love it. I've had one or two others. Um, I'm like, do I do I lean more D&D-ish? Because we're trying to tie into that movie. Oh, the D&D movie. The oh. first one. Okay. <laughs> um, but here's what I'm going to say. Here's a life lesson for you. Yeah. The heart wants what it wants. <laughs> sure does. Whether it's logical or not. And so for us, I have selected to be my pick from 1983, directed by the one, the only, Lucio Fulci, Conquest. Conquest, okay. In a place beyond time comes a terrifying challenge beyond your imagination. Uh Now, I have seen this one. I have to, but damn, I want to talk about it. I'm anxious to rewatch it. I'll say that. And, and I'll say this. This is our, we always kind of end up with like a sub theme when we do these by accident. Mm-hmm. And so our theme here is we've gone weirder with every step. So Dragon Slayer is pretty conventional for like a fantasy film. And then Solomon Kane goes one step weirder because we've got like this dark fantasy stuff. Yeah. 
we're going to bonkers land for this next one. <laughs> well, I mean, it's inevitable that the Italians would show up in this series because they did so many like direct to video fantasy films. Right. And I thought you were going to get us there with the barbarians, but oh, I wanted to. I'm saving that for later. <laughs> I'll, I'll work it in somehow. Um, I don't want to say too much other than it's a very weird fantasy setting. <laughs> um, it's very Fulci. It's got several Blu-ray releases in the last few years, so it, it's out there. I, it was streaming on Shutter. I don't know if it still is. I'm sure um, it's streaming somewhere. It's gonna be on something. One mm-hmm. of one of the there or Arrow or somewhere. Ah, Tubi to the rescue. Ah, Tubi. It, yes, it perfect. is streaming for free on Tubi. There you go. There's no excuse not to watch it. It's also on Shout TV and Plex. Um, prepare yourself for a bow that shoots lasers. Mm-hmm. Um, a very obvious Conan ripoff, except he has like bone nunchucks. <laughs> and an evil sorceress whose key feature is that she's basically always naked. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's going to get weird, my friend. Uh-huh. And each movie is getting more graphic as we go. That's true as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Kane was an R, and now we're going to like... Hard, hard R. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm looking forward to rewatching it and talking this about it. This will be fun. So, thanks for joining us. Um, again, send your well wishes toward Michael. We love you, dude. We miss you. Sorry we couldn't catch you on this one, but we'll get you in. That's right. In the future when we can. Um, keep talking to us. Keep sending us things. Sending us your movie recommendations of stuff we should cover for the show. We need more. You know, I concepted a sticker design. We got we got samples. We have them here with us in the studio. Um, they're not fancy or anything. They're kind of just our logo, but it's in sticker form. It's in sticker form, <laughs> and it's cool. We've never had anything to give people that's representative of the show. So I'm wondering. I'm throwing this idea out there, and maybe if people can tell me if this is a cool idea or not. I'm wondering if we can ransom these stickers for movie recommendations, and oh. then and then if we if we do your movie as an episode. Send you the sticker. We'll send you the sticker. I like it. I don't know. Let me know what you think about that, and we'll we'll see where we can go. I mean, who doesn't want a sticker? Who doesn't want a sticker? Why not? <laughs> um, and you know, we'll we'll post it to you. Whatever. I'm just, doesn't matter where you are. We'll figure it out. And it's not scratch and sniff, but we can make it scratch and sniff <laughs> by request. Yes. <laughs> Even Michael. <laughs> um, otherwise, yeah, man. Just let us know what you've been watching. Um, we appreciate it every time. We love it. Um, Keep tuning in. Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Instagram. You can email us at genreexposure at gmail.com. We're also on YouTube. If for some reason you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, some people do. It's convenient. So it's there. Mm -hmm. Why not? Um, Otherwise, you have been listening to Genre Exposure. Bye, everyone. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening